Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. John 20. Why did John write? Why did John write the Gospel of John? Okay, good, good. So what's the scripture reference for that? I think anytime you read the Gospel of John, you ought to look at that reference. Anybody know? It's right at the end. Yeah, pretty close. Not exactly at the end. 2031. Um, if you if you don't mind underlining your Bible, that'd be a good one to underline. Anytime you have a writer that tells us their purpose, um, that's a benefit. If you're on your phone, you can hold down on it and you can underline that way. But uh, that's always a good, uh, and then if a note comes up, it's always good to put, this is the purpose for which John writes. He tells us why he's writing. And then we have to think that the unity of the book is found in his purpose. So Anytime we're reading through the book, it's certainly we want to be encouraged as believers, but he's got something else in mind. He wants us to believe and have life in Jesus. And so we've been looking at the conversations in the Gospel of John, and we've come through uh, several of them. But uh, anybody remember what the last one was? Mary Magdalene. And there's some things that happened there The the... Uh, resurrection morning rolls around, and some people go to the tomb. Who are they? Peter and John, and uh, who else? Mary, Mary Magdalene, right? And John, he looks in, and he and something happens. What is what happens there? He believes. He believes. He looks in, and he believes. What was it that caused John to believe? Okay, he saw the the fabric laying there, and what would what would that possibly tell us? That he'd risen, and probably by default that the body wasn't stolen. Okay, that was one of the arguments early. Was somebody came and took the body of Jesus, and and uh, in fact that was one of the the arguments that the religious leaders put out was that the disciples came and stole the body and. Uh, so we're, we, we know that John believed Peter leaves the scene and goes back. Mary is, uh, lingering in the garden there and she runs into the, the risen Christ. And as she's talking to him, she thinks that maybe it's the gardener or somebody else. And, and he calls her by name and she realizes who it is. And then he sends her on a mission, which is What? Go tell the boys. That's exactly what I had in mind. Go tell the boys what's happened. And I love I love the fact that uh, despite how vitriolic some of the discussion around this is, Jesus chooses a lady to be the first witness. I think that's really, really special. And, uh, of course, you know that has some drawbacks to it, that the witness of women in that day weren't... Uh, 
weren't reliable. So if you're writing propaganda, you don't want to include a detail like that. You understand? This is a, this is a fact that he sent Mary as his, his first witness. And, and so it tells us that, it, that in order to overcome that kind of credibility gap in that day, it would have uh, required somebody being committed to the principle of being honest. Okay, you understand what I mean by that? So Mary goes back uh, to the guys. That's where our next conversation picks up. And I want you to keep in mind a little bit about John. John sees something. He doesn't see Jesus. He sees the empty tomb. He sees, in, in a way, the absence of Jesus in the place where Jesus, he thought, should have been. And it leads to his belief and I think, uh, I don't think John's here patting himself on the back. I think he's telling us the way that it is that he believed. Well, that's good to keep in mind because of what comes next. In verse 19, we're going to read through this first part and, and break through this a little bit and, and look at some details of all of this. We won't be able to go as deep as we'd want to into all of this. I know it's going to stir some provocative questions <laughs> as we look through this, but look, look at verse 19 with me. On the evening, of the first day of the week, of that, not just the, that first day of the week. Uh, what day are we talking about? Sunday, and which Sunday? Resurrection Sunday. It's Easter Sunday. It's the evening of that night. And here, I, I, I want to just say this, and we'll, we'll move on, but John breaks away from his typical convention of using Jewish timing. Usually the evening of the first day of the week would be a Saturday night. But here he breaks away from convention and says, uh, this is the same night as the resurrection of the Lord. When the disciples were together, uh, the doors were locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Jesus came and he stood among them and he said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless... I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where his nails were and put my hands into his side. I will not, I will not believe. A week later, your translation might have eight days later. John's intending to tell us the next Sunday. It's the next Sunday. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and he stood among them and said, peace be with you. So we're getting a the reoccurrence of the same event, in a way. Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. What do you think John's trying to get at in telling that story? I think there's something kind of specific in it. How many how many people um, from the from the writings of the New Testament do we know of that saw the resurrected Lord? Anybody remember? 
No. Mm-hmm. Remember First uh, Corinthians 15 when it goes through, it says that, you know, these the certain disciples, Peter, saw, and then it goes on to say, and then at one point up to 500 at the same time. So we're not talking about mass delusion here that Jesus came and he appeared in their midst and uh, he met with them in that intervening time between his his um, resurrection and the ascension. So he meets with them, and there's there's many people who who got to see Jesus. And Paul says some of them are still alive. If you want to talk to him at the writing of First Corinthians, you could talk to him. So the eyewitness accounts were important. It's important, and probably beyond what we realize, it's important that this is a historical fact. We're not dealing with a myth. We're not dealing with a useful fiction. Some people believe in religion not because uh, they really believe it, but because it helps them get through life, helps them get through the day. And so Paul says, if Christ is not raised, then our faith is in vain. In other words, our faith is built on a fact. Okay? If it didn't happen, then we're believing in a fantasy. And I hope we'll get that, get that through to our heart tonight, that this isn't just, it do, a lot of people will say it doesn't matter what you believe so long as you believe it with all your heart. It does matter what you believe, right? Okay, it's, it's important that what we believe is actually the truth. And so, up to 500, were you there? <laughs> I wasn't there. I heard the story, though. How about you? We heard it as it traveled down through generations, through eyewitness account first, and then it was passed along this good news. And so why is it important that John writes this as he comes to the close of his life? We think that probably John wrote uh, anywhere from A.D. 85 to maybe 95, somewhere in there. That being the case, he's coming to the end of his life. The eyewitnesses who are there are dying off. Why is it important that he would write this? For future generations, because there's going to come a time when people couldn't have done what Thomas did. Because Jesus, of course, was risen and he spent time there and then he ascended. So it's impossible to do that. And so if we're going to believe from this point on, John is saying, uh, and he's not, this is not him saying it, but this is him recording the words of Jesus, who in foresight realizes not everybody can have this same kind of empirical evidence. So blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's you and me. So he's encouraging this kind of belief as the gospel begins to move out in concentric circles away from Jerusalem and into Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. There's going to be more and more people who are going to come to faith from every tongue and tribe and nation. It excites me, the fact that the gospel has reached the ends of the earth and continues to reach into those deep places where people are yet have yet to know uh, the saving life of Christ. So this is why I think this story is part of John's gospel, is he could have written a lot of things. And we hear that, as he says later on, uh, Jesus, in verse 30, look at verse 30 with me, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these, these things that are here, are written that you might believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. We're in verse 31 now. And by believing, you might have life in his name. And so he's saying, what that tells us is that John, in his recording of the Gospels, being led by the Holy Spirit, is selective about what he chooses to write down. 
He can't write everything. Not everything can be recorded, but there are key things. And he's using these details in order to tell us as people who don't have the opportunity to see the nail scars in his hands, not this side of eternity, or to put our hand in his side. We don't get that opportunity, but he's saying, if you, if you will believe, you'll be blessed. Do you hear that? Blessed are those who have not seen yet believe. Turn it around for our understanding here. If you believe, you'll be blessed. Do you see that? To be blessed is to be brought into uh, the favor of God. Okay, That's in the most general sense. We sometimes think about it tangibly, like I'm blessed with my family, I'm blessed with finances, I'm blessed with a new car. Uh, but when we're talking about blessed in the Old Testament sense of the word, it's to stand under the favor of God. Okay, So listen, when um, Moses writes the words that he's supposed to bless the children of Aaron with, remember? Or the children of Aaron are supposed to bless all of Israel with. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And then in parallel form, may he make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you. To be blessed is to stand under the smile of God. Do you hear? And that's good news, isn't it? That happens through Christ. Those who have not seen and yet believe. I dare you to believe. I know you're Probably all believers here, you're trusting in the Lord. Has your life not been blessed as you stand before God in Christ? So there's a lot of interesting questions, and I'm going to just lay this out uh, according to uh, a chronological outline here. And the first uh, first thing I'm going to put here is resurrection night. Resurrection night, sorry. Okay, and this is going to be, we're going to hear from Jesus. The focus of this is Jesus, verse uh, 19 through 23. Uh, And the first thing I'd like you to notice here is that he appeared to them. He appeared to them. Okay, who's the he? Jesus, and who's the them? Disciples in the same room. It says in verse 19, Jesus He came and stood among them. We heard it's on the evening of the first day of the week. This would have been the same day of the resurrection. Um, Who has he appeared to at this point that we know of? Resurrection day. Mary and the Emmaus boys or possibly a couple. Some people think maybe it was uh, Cleopas and his wife that are on the road to Emmaus, but we tend to put those two as guys, but maybe it's a couple. Wouldn't that be lovely to be the first couple that Jesus appeared to? Uh, I, I don't know, and so there's a, there's a possibility there, and there's a good argument that could be made for that. Mary, the two on the road to Emmaus, and then who? These guys right here. This is it. He comes into the room on that first day of the, the week. Resurrection night, minus Thomas, yes, good point. Minus, he's not there. He came and he stood among them. And notice what he says in verse 19. Verse 19 says that he comforted them. He said, peace be with you or peace to you. Might be a little bit better way to say that. And this is a, 
This is a kind of a blessing, and it really matters. The circumstance really uh, determines what exactly Jesus is saying here. Raymond Brown, who's got one of the best commentaries on the book of John, he says that it was a standard greeting, but when it was said in a particular way in a solemn context, it became a statement of comfort and revelation in otherwise uh, troubling times. So a statement of comfort and revelation, and he mentions uh, Gideon, and he mentions Daniel, how when they are faced with this moment where God, uh, God's presence comes or an angel comes, and they're about ready to receive something, and they're scared, peace to you. Peace to you. And that's the word. It brings comfort, but it also prepares them for something that God is going to say or do in their midst. And so you can imagine here, that this is what this moment would have been like since only three people had seen Jesus alive. And now he's revealing himself. There's been rumors stirring. Mary's come back. I bet some of the guys are thinking, can we trust this report? Uh, others have believed. John's believed. But maybe there's some mixed reactions to all of this, even though it's not recorded for us. I'm, I'm just speculating. But you can still uh, get the sense, because they're hiding behind closed doors, that they're worried a little bit about what's going to come of all this. Even if Jesus was raised, way out of the woods. Well, I think they think differently once he comes into the room. At least it changes things a little bit. They really change their tune when they get filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, So here they are in this room. It would have been one of those moments. And this is a declaration of peace because God's done something great. They just, they don't know all the details of it yet. You realize, though, that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. It does, changes everything. It provides uh, hope beyond the grave. It gives us um, a relational way in which we can enter into that. Notice in verse 20 here, it says that he showed them his hands and his side. Okay, This isn't Thomas there yet asking the question. This is John telling the story about what happened. He showed them his hands and his side. And that might not sound that significant since Jesus is standing there, but it has some major implications for our theology. And that might even sound too ivory tower for us. But I want to tell you that it matters that Jesus came in the flesh. One thing that's interesting here is that, in my understanding of this, Jesus is in his resurrected body, but there still bears some scars from this life. Do you think that's interesting? There's some scars still from this life. I don't know what that means or what that looks like for us as Christians. There's a glory yet about him. And so Jesus is standing here, and John's writing his gospel about the same time that two heresies were taking off. Anybody want to help define what a heresy is? What's a heresy? Okay, deceiving lie. False doctrine. Okay, anything else? <laughs> no, it's all right. Think about this, that usually a, 
and this isn't always the case, I don't know if this even would apply here, but oftentimes uh, heresy comes from one truth exaggerated to the exclusion of another. Okay, So you take one truth and exclude the other side, and you get a heresy. And um, I think this sometimes happened, but there are two heresies that are beginning to become prevalent right about the time John is writing in the, let's say, eighty ninety. Okay. Uh, anybody want to take a guess at what those are? Okay. Gnosticism. Gnosticism. It's right here. That's a G. Okay. This comes from the Greek word gnosko, which means to know. It's knowledge is your salvation and not Christ. Okay. I'll talk. Well, kind of. Let me talk about this second one, and then I'll I'll define these a little more. The second one. Sorry, that's an O. Docetism. Okay, and docetism comes from a Greek word, dikeo, which means to appear, it looks like. Okay, and what what these two have to do with, first, uh, let's talk about this bottom one here, docetism. Okay, and docetism taught that Jesus was not really human. He only appeared to be human. So this false Doctrine begins to come into the church, and it has its roots just as Gnosticism does in Greek um, philosophy. And so people thought um, if God were in flesh, he couldn't be tainted by really coming into the material world because the material world was corrupt and evil. How do, how do, how do we feel about the material world? Let's, let's go back to Genesis. What's the Bible say about it? It was good. Created good. Okay, and then what? Okay, what do we call that? There's a four-letter word for that. The, the fall, right? Okay, and uh, the Bible says in Romans 8 that all creation is groaning, waiting for the adoption to happen. So creation is, there was a, a curse that fell upon the ground, remember? And, and it made <laughs> getting produce really hard. And we find that there's things that are not quite as they should have been under the good banner of God's creation. And that's because of the sinfulness of humanity. And we were the first stewards of this place. And so there was a result of that. So we believe that the material world was created good, but has been marred by sin. In uh, uh, Greek philosophy or mythology, they taught that there was another evil God that created the material world to enslave the spirit world. And so what's really good is the spirit world. What's bad is the material world. And so they were mixing these philosophical ideas of spirit good, matter bad, and they were bringing it and mixing it with Christian theology. And they were saying, if spirit is good and material is bad, Jesus couldn't really have been in a material body because that would have been to be stained, to be sinful in a way, to be uh, one with what is evil. Okay, so you have docetism. So its solution to this is he wasn't really human. He only appeared to be. Well, he popped into the room. Sorry for that uh, not-so-relevant verb. It's not reverent. He came into the room, and he stood among them, okay? And he showed them how tangible he really was. Okay. Are you with me? I think one of the synoptics, it's either Mark or Luke, if I remember right, 
says that he came in and he asked them, do you guys have anything to eat? Do you remember that? (laughs) And we think that's so bizarre. Why would he do that? Well, the gospel writer is showing us that he's flesh and blood. Well, flesh and bone. Okay. You understand that he's, he has a body, uh, his resurrected body. He didn't come back as a ghost. That's the point that's being made here. Gnosticism believed uh, something similar in terms of uh, matter being evil and spirit being good. And so what they, they did is they thought, and this, this happened, this is one of the stumbling blocks for the Greeks or the, uh, the stigma that was there, was that if somebody died and their body or their spirit was released from this material's prison, why would they come back to it? Do you understand? Why would you come back to it? Once you die and you've been released from the jail, you don't go back to the jail. And so the Greeks often stumbled over the cross because of that very thing. Why could, why would you, when they talked about the resurrection, that Jesus' spirit would come back into his, his body, why would he do that? And many people couldn't get past that. It was foolishness to them. Wisdom was found in ascending beyond the material world. And so Gnosticism taught that John is dealing with the beginnings of these things. And there are people probably coming into the churches. And we, if you want to read more about this, read 1 John. It makes a whole lot of sense when you read 1 John in light of this. Because one of the arguments John makes in 1 John is any spirit that comes that says Jesus didn't come in the flesh. They're not one of us. You understand what that's saying now? Is he's dealing with a heresy that's come in. And I think part of his gospel is here showing that Jesus was resurrected in the flesh because that's Christian theology, not this, not this stuff. This is not. Okay, Jesus came in the flesh. He was God among us. He was one with us. He died on the cross and he rose not not in a spirit as a spirit rises. Like when we, we die, we, I believe personally, some people believe a little different on this, but I believe that it, when you die, your spirit goes to be with God. Okay? Some people believe in soul sleep, which means they think your spirit sleeps in the grave until Jesus comes back. Jesus said to the thief on the cross today, you'll be with me in paradise. Paul said, uh, to depart is to be with Christ. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so... It seems to me that you go straight away, and that's our spirit rising. But what happens is that there's coming a day when our bodies will rise again. And I'm not troubled by the fact that some people's bodies have been so decayed or so burned. God took a lump of clay, and he formed it, and he breathed life into it. He could do it again. So I'm not bothered by that at all. And I hope you're not either. So... When we say Jesus rose from the dead, we're not saying that his spirit came alive only. His spirit continued to live on. He, his body was received life again. That's what we're talking about in the resurrection is that his body rose again. He showed them his hands and his feet. And I would suggest to you that this is the, po- the more popular Hebrew idea of what takes place. What's... Yes. They didn't focus so much on the resurrection. 
Well, I wouldn't say that. Gnosticism is a really broad category. There's a lot of different uh, beliefs. Some of the um, some of the extra gospels that sometimes you hear people naming, they're Gnostic gospels, and you'll know the difference if you read them. You'll know the difference because they're weird, really weird. Like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they go together. You can tell they're different authors, they use different language, different syntax, but you start reading those other guys, whoever they are, and it gets weird. And they're not, I don't think they're disciples, but it's this broad category, and they don't focus so much even on Jesus so much as that the, this certain knowledge will help us ascend beyond the physical world. It's really a strange thing. It's not, it's not like Christianity. You know, if you thought... Um, some of the cults that are around today are weird. This is even more separated from that. So, um, and that's not to endorse modern cults. I'm just saying that this is gets pretty far out there. And it's what happens when you mix um, pagan philosophy with Christianity. At some point, you have to draw the line and go, I have to reject what I thought I knew and cling to God and understand his things his way. I hope that helps. Okay, where were we in in that? He showed his hands and his feet. Oh, the Hebrew idea. What are what are some of the, what's the other what are the what's the understanding of the Sadducees? Do you remember? No resurrection, no miracles to speak of, no angels. They're not. Uh, there's, they didn't really believe in the supernatural. Maybe they believed in angels, but. I'm not sure how they mesh that with the idea of um, what comes after death. But the Pharisees or the Sadducees were a thin lot, and that developed a lot later in Judaism. Like I would suggest to you that that Aaron and his sons that they would have believed in some kind of a resurrection. But then, what's the other dominant uh, group in that day? The most probably the most famous Jewish sect at the time of Jesus. The Pharisees, right? And they believed in the resurrection. Remember Paul, um, when he's before the Sanhedrin, it's a split body. They have, they have some Democrats and some Republicans in there, some Pharisees and some Sadducees in there. And um, he divides the house. He says, well, I'm a Pharisee, as some of you are. And those guys get going at each other over things like the resurrection, and they let Paul go because they're so mad at each other. So... The the dominant view the fair the the Sadducees were a small group. We we might want to take the group and divide it in, in half and go, this many were Sadducees and this many were Pharisees. But that would be inaccurate. Overwhelmingly, the majority party in Israel during the time of Jesus were Pharisees. They were the Pharisaical party, or they followed that brand of Judaism. Sadducees were a a, a, a slim. Uh, number we have the Essenes. They had a post. They had a post life resurrection hope. So I'm suggesting this is the dominant theme, and I think this is important to say. Uh, Job in chapter 19, verse 25. I know that my redeemer lives. Where where is Job, by the way, in the Bible? Old Testament, right? And when the Old Testament's before or after Jesus died on the cross and rose again. It's before, right? I know that's, but putting these things together is important to understand this picture that 
Job all the way back in the Old Testament. And this might have even been in the, we can't even date Job really well, but some people think this is as old as the patriarchs. Okay. Listen, Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. So, this is uh, an Old Testament uh, showing that there was a belief in a bodily resurrection. And there's other verses that relate to that. Uh, but John writes more about that concerning the flesh. Uh, Jesus coming in the flesh in First John. Sorry. Okay, the next part here. Um, Jesus showed them his wounds, and he, and the response was that they were overjoyed. Behind closed doors, they've been afraid. A rumor had circulated that they had stolen the body of Christ, and maybe they were a little bit afraid, but, but now Jesus comes in the room, and they're overjoyed by it. And there's evidence even in this as he shows the nail piercings in his hands and his feet. Do you know that we have a lot of testimony from those, the first century, of different things. We know a lot about crucifixion from different uh, writers um, but do you know that outside of the Gospels and the church fathers that followed immediately after them, we, don't have, we didn't have for the longest time any external evidence that people got their hands and their feet nailed. A lot of times they thought you, they just tied them to the cross. And then in 1968, this is interesting to me, in 1968, somebody found uh, a first century ossuary, uh, containing the remains of a crucified man whose feet had been pierced through the ankle bone by a nail. So we have archaeological evidence that confirms what some people have begun to doubt. There's some people that's like, well, we don't have any evidence of that anywhere except in the Gospels. Well, then, now we have example from archaeology that this is what happened. It confirms the Gospel account. We, we have a lot of that time and time again. Uh, he called them... Uh, to some kind of a ministry here. And it sounds a little bit like the Great Commission. Look at verse 21 here. It says, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. What's he sending them to? To the world? Okay. What's he sending them to do? To preach the gospel, to bring the kingdom, right? So that sounds a lot like the Great Commission. And then it says that he authorized them. Okay, um, it sounds like what Jesus is suggesting here in this verse is that he's telling us that we have the right, or the apostles did at least, to forgive or say you're not forgiven. It sounds like that. Okay, but we have to understand a little bit more about that. He says if you forgive uh, anyone their sins, they're forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they're not forgiven. Uh, are we to think that the apostles have carte blanche authority on who's forgiven and who's not. I don't think so. And I think there's good reason for understanding this a different way. See, this is not at our whim. Uh, it's not at their whim. This is only declaratory. Okay, The passive voice that's used here, if you forgive their sins, they are forgiven. The passive voice suggests that God is the one who is doing the forgiving in this, not them. So it's really 
up to God. What they have the right to do or the responsibility to do is to act in a declaratory way. They say what they see God doing. If somebody responds to Christ and repents of their sins, then they need to proclaim to that person that they've been forgiven. If they refuse the message of the preached gospel, they may need to proclaim to those people, you can't be forgiven apart from Christ. Do you see how that plays out? It's not so much you guys go out and decide whether people should be forgiven or not. That's not it. Okay, What it's doing is saying, based on the criteria and the calling that I'm giving you, you need to help people understand when they're forgiven and when they're not. That's the difference there. Okay, Merrill Tenney says, he's a, he's a, a late Bible scholar who uh, dealt a lot with the book of John. He says, it's never been the role of the minister or priest to forgive sins. They can only announce the fact that sins have been forgiven. When the message is accepted, forgiveness is granted. When it's refused, forgiveness is withheld. And uh, Mark chapter 2, verse 7, Mark reminds us in his argument for the deity of Christ that only God can forgive sins. Remember, Jesus says your sins are forgiven, and the religious leaders are in an uproar, and rightly they should be. Who can forgive sins on earth but God? And Mark is using that to help build his argument. Then it says that he empowered them. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, let me ask a question here. In your estimation, because right now, where are we? What time of... What, what period of time after the resurrection are we? Not quite. Yeah, sorry. We, I thought we'd be moving much quicker than this. <laughs> the evening of the resurrection. Okay, is this before or after Pentecost? It's before. He breathes on them the Holy Spirit. How do we reconcile that? Because a lot of people want to say, that the Holy Spirit comes on people only after Pentecost. Is that how we're to understand this? It could be. Yeah, I really, I think that personally, that's my understanding is that when we come to Christ, the moment we come to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into our life. Okay, if anyone doesn't have the Holy Spirit, the Bible says they don't belong to, they don't belong to Christ. They don't belong to God. So that means if you're a believer in Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. Now there's a weird faction. I think it's weird within Pentecost that says, unless you've been filled with the Holy Spirit and speak in other tongues, you're not really saved. That's wrong. I'm afraid that's wrong. Um, there is a faction that teaches that. Why? Because they equate the coming of the Holy Spirit into a person's life with the initial evidence. I think there's a confusion there. And there's a lot of people out there that think that's what all Pentecostals believe. And they're wrong about that because we don't. I know. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. He didn't make at that point any allusion to tongues. I think infilled is one thing, filled is another, it seems to me. Yeah. Yep, that's that's how I understand it. So, somebody else?
Okay, I thought I heard another voice out there. Well, here's three options that the Bible scholars have come to regarding this. The first, uh, it seems to me, well, not to me, this is uh, D.A. Carson, that John included his Pentecost account in a separate place. Okay, So this is one understanding is that this is actually John's uh, Pentecost account because it's all relating how the Holy Spirit comes in relation to Christ. And so it's not so important in one view, in this one view that it's not actually on the day of Pentecost. It's more important that we understand the connection between Christ and the Holy Spirit coming. Okay, I think that's a rather weak argument. Um, the second is that John shows Jesus giving them the Holy Spirit symbolically, but it's later fulfilled at Pentecost. So what this tries to do is do away with the trouble between receiving the Holy Spirit once and then receiving the Holy Spirit again. Okay, that's another view. And and that's, I mean, that's possible. It could be. Uh, but I think, personally, the third one is the best, that John shows two different kinds of empowering with the Holy Spirit. The first is the empowerment for regeneration, and the second is the empowerment for ministry. John Calvin, I'm surprised to hear this, this John Calvin, he says, this is the, them being sprinkled here and saturated later. Isn't that interesting? You wouldn't think John Calvin would say that. And so whatever's happening here, we need to understand Jesus is endorsing them to ministry. He's giving them, he's breathing on them the Holy Spirit. And this suggests, uh, anytime you see breathing on like this, this suggests the giving of life. And so I, I would think that this is regeneration. A later encounter with the Holy Spirit is uh, empowerment for ministry. Okay? All right. That's uh, our first section. Let's go through the next section here if we have time. Verse 24 through 25, uh, and we'll call this one sometime later. Sometime later. Because we don't know. We know it's within this next week, and this is sometime later, Thomas. So the last one focused around Jesus. Here, the description focuses on Thomas, where Thomas was or wasn't, okay? Where was he in that previous encounter? Where was he on the night of the resurrection? Not there. We don't, that's all we know. He's not there. Why is he not there? You'd think he'd want to be with the guys on that night. But maybe, I, I can't prove this, but I don't see any reason. Maybe there's a, in the other Gospels it would say something regarding this. But at least from John's account, I can't see any reason that we could think that maybe Thomas doesn't yet know about the resurrection. Maybe he does. Uh, maybe there's something in the statement that suggests that he does. Thomas uh, was a twin, right? How do we know that? Thomas, also known as Didymus, which means twin. So where <laughs> that <laughs> leads to another question. Where's his twin? Did he die? Is he around? Is he an unbeliever? Is he following Jesus too, but more in the background? It's not really relevant. John didn't pick to tell us that. But I think it's interesting here that Jesus has nicknames for some of his disciples. I don't know that this is necessarily Jesus' nickname for him. It just says that Thomas is called Didymus. So Maybe this is something the boys gave him. Maybe it's something that he's kind of had as a nickname his whole life. But 
uh, Simon, he called something else, didn't he? What? Peter or, or Cephas, right? Cephas. He's rock. Rocky, if you will. Okay. And then James and John, Boergenes. What's that mean? Sons of thunder. Okay. Thomas Didymus, although it doesn't say Jesus called him that. You know, Thomas only mentioned by name 11 times. Uh, or in 11 verses, I should say, and, and I guess the word would appear 11 times. Uh, once each in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where would it be in those accounts, do you think? When, he, when, he, when the disciples are named, usually there's a naming of the disciples. And so that tells us in the other guy's story, Thomas doesn't play a big role. I, I wonder if Thomas and John were kind of good friends because he comes up quite a bit in John. We hear about him once in Acts and then seven times in John, seven times uh, Thomas is mentioned. Five of them happen in John 20. That's interesting, too. The only other time that he's referred to as Didymus is in John eleven sixteen, when he said, let us go to Jerusalem also that we may die with him. Thomas, who is called Didymus, remember, they hear about Lazarus. The heat's on at this point. Persecution is growing. The heat's on, and there's, there's getting to be this sense that if Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he's, he faces mortal danger. And so Thomas, what does he say? Is, is he just a coward and just doesn't want to believe anything? No. He's like, let's go, that we may die with him. Of course, that doesn't happen right away, and it certainly doesn't happen later on. We do have a tradition that says Thomas took the gospel to India and died there. Uh, if I, I can't remember the details, but it seems like it was a pretty horrific way. So once he became convinced of something, he laid his life on the line. We don't know why he's not with the guys the night of the resurrection. Maybe he hasn't heard. Maybe uh, we know he wasn't with Jesus when, or with the guys when Jesus showed up. So what was Thomas told here? Verse 25, the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. We've seen the Lord. Okay, so he hears that. Sounds like good news. And what did Thomas say in response to that? Verse 25, he didn't believe it. And he said even more than that. It was a little more emphatic even than that. Unless I see the nail and I put my finger, yep, I will not, I will not believe. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how that would affect that. Maybe. And then he's repeating, saying, "I need to, I need to see it like you guys did." Yeah. Maybe that's it. That's a good point. Well, he's, I'm, he says, I'm, I'm not going to believe. I need some more evidence. But here's what Thomas has. He, he has the promise of Jesus that he would return to them. He's made that promise already. And that maybe that's something he should have believed. And he has the reliable witness from people that he's known intimately who are, I'm sure he has the sense they're not playing a joke on him. I don't know that they even joke about that at this particular time. But he still 
for whatever reason, can't believe it, won't believe it. So what he requires then is empirical evidence. Empirical evidence is some kind of uh, evidence that comes from the the senses, okay? So from the eyes, from the touch, he needs that. He wants that. In other words, I don't know that he needs it because we didn't need it and we believed but that's what that that's what he thinks he requires to believe. He wants to see. It says, "I want to see. I want to touch." And uh, incidentally, how does he know that Jesus was nailed and pierced? Was he there at the crucifixion? I don't. I don't know. I maybe it would seem to me maybe he would stand way in the background. That's possible. He could have stood afar off. Um, or another possibility, he wasn't there and he only heard about the details. You understand the significance of that is that if, if Thomas really wasn't there, how did he know Jesus was pierced? How did he know about the spear in the side? I would suggest if that happened, that could be a possibility. Somebody told him, which leads us to this problem. He'll believe one story from these guys, but he won't believe the other. That's a, that's a problem. But he's willing to reject the idea that Jesus is risen. Hey, we're in the last point here, verses 26 through 29, and this is a week later. And, and that may be right there, that it, it's easy to fit one piece in. There's not much to it. And perhaps there's also a, a tendency towards a negative view, could be, and not, not so much... Uh, propensity towards that kind of hope. I don't know. So the first one we have Jesus as the focus. The second category we have Thomas as the focus. And now we have a week later and it's Jesus and Thomas. Where is Thomas? Verse 26. He's with them. It says, and Thomas was with them. They're in the room. They're still locked behind closed doors or behind closed doors. And he's with them. It says a week later here, uh, the actual Greek is um, tells us that it's eight days later. But John's point is he wants us to understand now it's the second Sunday. Okay, So they're in the second Sunday, um, which I think has some importance to why we meet on Sunday. They're meeting on Sunday. We're following a New Testament pattern. Okay, uh, I don't think we have to be super hard and fast about that. But it's Resurrection Day, and that's what they... Uh, celebrated in the early church. What Jesus said to everyone, he came into the room, verse 26. What does he say to them? First thing, peace be with you or peace to you. Okay, same thing. We're getting a repeat event here. It's it's almost as if Jesus is offering to Thomas a rerun. Okay, pardon that expression because it's been so uh, profaned by television, right? But it's a opportunity to see again what's happened before. Peace be to you. It reminds us of earlier. And then Jesus, what he said to Thomas, he he said to Thomas, put your finger here. What uh, sense does that relate to? Touch, right? And see my hands. What sense does that relate to? Sight, okay? Reach out your hand and put it into my side, Okay, again, touch. Okay. Here's an interesting thought D.A. Carson brought up. 
is that it never tells us that Thomas does that. What if just seeing it now at this point was enough? I don't want to disrupt your theology. I don't think it would. But if he didn't really touch and he's just like, all right, I see it. I've seen enough. I know that I can believe now. Whatever happens here, uh, Thomas changes his tune. Put your finger here. Reach out your hand. He says, stop doubting. Doubting here um, is defined as pertaining to not believing with the implication of refusing to believe. Okay? So we've, we've left the realm of um, believing just sort of happening to us, and we're entering into the realm of believing takes um, an act of the will. Okay? Do you understand the significance of that? It seems that when Jesus even issues this command, he's not leaving its chance. He's commanding Thomas to believe. I find that really fascinating that we don't just, we sometimes treat belief and unbelief as if this is just sort of what we happen to fall into, rather than that we have a choice to play. I think it's a little more complicated than that, actually. I think it's probably that something presents itself to us, and there's a moment at which the Spirit is speaking and we, at, maybe at that moment, choose, am I going to trust in him or am I going to resist him? And so there's an act of the will. It's, it's amazing to me, and this happens in sports all the time, that two people watching the same play, depending on which team they're going for, can see two different things. Have you noticed that? Like, oh, that guy was definitely out. Oh, he was definitely in. You can hear the crowd. They're going wild. They think it's such a terrible call the ref made. You watch it on the replay, and you find out something a little bit different. And what it tells me is that at times we believe what we want to believe. Okay? Which side are you on? If you're on God's side, we're going we're gonna to gear towards or veer a little bit towards belief in the things that uh, he's shown us. If we're on our own side and maybe self-protective, we might resist that if we want to keep our own kingdom. Jesus says, stop doubting and believe. Believe me is pertaining to trusting. One who trusts in or is trusting here. And I, I, I think here he's calling him not just to believe the fact of the resurrection, but to believe in him as the risen Christ. This is more than just believing the doctrine of resurrection. We need to do that. That's part of our, our sound um, creed. But it's much more than that. It's believing in the raised Christ. That's where it's at. Lexham English Bible says, don't be unbelieving, but believe. Uh, D.A. Carson says, one possibility is this, do not be an unbeliever but a believer. Quit standing in the category of the unbeliever and be a believer now that you've seen and know. And how does, how does Thomas respond to this? Verse 28. What's, what is it? My Lord and my God. His salvation experience. It's a confession of faith. The grandest kind. That he would say this of... Jesus, to Jesus, my Lord, kurios, my God, theos. He's saying that to Jesus here. This is a confession of belief in Jesus. And John 
reports Thomas expressing the highest confidence in Christ as both Lord and God. This is something that people in Jesus' day, no Jew would ever do this unless they were apostate. But in Jesus' day, people said this about Caesar. They called him uh, in Latin, Dominus et Deus, Lord and God. In Greek, it'd be the kurios, kai theos, uh, Lord and God. And uh, what we find from Thomas is he wouldn't attribute that to anybody. And John, if he's uh, writing this from Ephesus, you already know that uh, the book of Revelation is a tract of end times, but it also is proclaiming Jesus as Lord even over Caesar. Okay, and that, there's some major implications with this. We don't have time to get into, but it's a high confession. And then I'd like you to notice my Lord and my God. This isn't an abstract the, the, theological statement. This is a personal confession of faith. Not just the Lord and the God, my Lord and my God. Do you understand? It's personal for him. It's a personal confession. And then you see how Jesus responded. Because you've seen me, you believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. John writes so that we will believe. And those who believe stand under the blessing of God. Hey, we didn't get to be there. We didn't get to touch the nail holes or put our hand in the side. But we believe the testimony, and God says, I bless you as a result of that. Remember God's promise to Abraham? Through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In the Old Testament, they want to make that a plural, but you realize that seed is a collective singular. I hear it's that in Hebrew. I hear that's that in Greek. I hear it's in English. Collective singular means that the same word can be both plural and singular, like deer. We don't say deers. We say moose, right? And what's the plural of moose? Moose, collective singular. Seed? Seed. Paul tells us in Galatians, not seeds as of many, but as of one, the seed Christ. Through your seed came down Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, through the line of David. Through your seed, all the nations of the earth will stand under God's smile as they turn to him. Amen? Amen, that's you and me. There's a reason to rejoice tonight. Hey, thanks for loaning me three more minutes. Let's stand. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for the incredible testimony that's here. Thank you, Lord, that you've shown uh, your followers in your word, warts and all, the times that they doubted. And, Lord, we take that as for our edification. It builds us up, and it helps us hear the response, the call of God, not to be doubters, but be believers. We want to trust in you. And as we... uh, start to look down through this Christmas season, we anticipate as we celebrate your coming, we anticipate the joy that's uh, to the world, and, and we live in it. I pray, God, that you help us to spread our belief and to show others the, the wonderful good news that we have in Jesus. Thank you, Lord. I pray for your help in this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here tonight. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.